Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, today I'm very happy to welcome a Young Voices contributor by the name of Connor Vasile. Connor, I'm actually familiar with only because uh, I, I happened to read this excellent article that we're going to be discussing uh, just, a, just a few days back. I read this. And uh, Connor, for, for those who are meeting you for the first time, we know that you're a Young Voices contributor. Could you take just a moment, tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thank you, Brian, for having me. Thank you. So, yes, uh, I'm Connor. I'm a Young Voices contributor. I'm also a current law student, so I got into writing about two years ago. I wanted to basically write on pro-liberty topics. Um, coming from a an immigrant family, I am first generation. Uh, I really wanted to just spread the word on um, liberty values and what we can do to basically expand liberty and, and self-responsibility as opposed to an increase in government, as unfortunately we've been seeing in the, the past few decades. So um, I try to use my writing in order to uh, reach an audience and see how we can honor the Constitution and basically honor our rights. Well, and there's a lot to keep our eyes on today. I mean, it, there there are um, challenges to our, our liberties at, at every corner. One in particular, though, that I think a lot of people might miss is uh, financially and, and monetarily. There's a very serious challenge that, and, and a choice that we're going to have to make in the not-so-distant future. And it has to do with a digital currency controlled by the central bank. And, and in particular, I, I guess they, they've rolled this out in just in this year, FedNow. Give us some background about what what FedNow is, and maybe tell us how is this being presented to the American public? Okay, so the FedNow program, uh, as you just said, it was recently rolled out by uh, the Federal Reserve. Um, it, in my opinion, didn't get as much uh, writing as I thought it should. This is, this is a pretty big change in how uh, we will bank and uh, basically have financial transactions in the near future. So basically, FedNow, uh, what the Federal Reserve is advertising it as is an instant payment method. So you get paid by your, your boss, your employer, or even if you make a, a purchase and you send money uh, online, let's say via Amazon or to Target or any other business. FedNow is advertised by the Federal Reserve as basically this instant payment method where you can, quote, get it in real time, any time of day, any day of the year, immediate funds available to the receiver. So they're really banking on this whole convenience uh, theme with their, uh, with their program. What people may or may not know is that they basically just rolled it out very recently, uh, this past month, actually, to around 40 different uh, establishments, institutions. And of these, actually, we see JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, US Bank, all these different banks nationally basically trying out the FedNow service. And what we're actually seeing is that they're not only going into the convenience model, but once it's being rolled out officially for more institutions, we are expecting many more banks and many more businesses to actually adopt this model. Um, now, as I said, face value superficially, oh, this is great. Who doesn't want to get paid um, quicker? Right, I mean, regardless of right? whether it's a holiday or not, hey, look, it still works. It's, it's the convenience aspect, of course. Uh, the issue with this is that uh, it basically opens a back door for the federal government to basically have a way into your finances, into your bank account information, and all of your transactions. Now, on the actual Federal Reserve website, they say, oh, please be rest assured, we are not going to be looking into accounts. Obviously, we can trust the federal government, right? I mean, this is totally legitimate, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's not like it's not like they would do anything like, oh, the Canadian government did to the people who supported the uh, truckers freedom convoy. 
Oh no, that was completely different. Yeah. That was uh, that. That will never happen here. Uh, well, Brian, you're actually going. Uh, you're reading my mind. I was going to bring up uh, the trucker fiasco. There, we find that uh, in our neighbor to the north with Canada, uh, Justin Trudeau, our favorite prime minister there, he uh, he basically enacted the Emergencies Act uh, during the protest. The trucker the truckers were having the. Uh, the the standouts and the the protests there and we basically found that in order to basically preserve quote-unquote public safety and interest he basically had the personal bank accounts of all of the people involved or even just donated to them shut down in canada um even though the emergency powers act in canada doesn't really delegate that much uh in terms of powers to the government in times of emergency he just decided it to be because of public safety uh, so to have this basically naive idea that, oh, this will never happen in America, well, that's not the case. We see it in Europe as well. Uh, we see the EU, they actually started uh, putting amendments to their money laundering acts, and we're actually seeing these instances where they're putting caps, like actual monetary caps, on how much uh, paper money, actual physical currency, Europeans can withdraw at any point in time. Uh, right now, actually, um, the set limit right now for uh, physical cash in Europe for a euro is 7,000 uh, to make payments to withdraw. Anything above is going to hit that red flag. Uh, same thing right now for, for crypto. They have limits as well. They are purportingly doing this because of, as I said, public safety to crack down on money laundering, terrorist funding and of that sort. But it really gets fishy when we start seeing how not only... The EU governments, but countries have actually in the area have been entertaining the idea of freezing bank accounts in order to prevent bank runs, as we saw recently this past year or so with, for example, the um, the Silicon Valley bank closure. People were trying to take out all their money, all their deposits, and they couldn't do it because they had no cash on hand. So we're already seeing these countries, especially in the EU, they're already entertaining the idea of literally freezing your bank account and freezing how much money you have. So you don't even own your money anymore in this, these instances, all for the sake of emergency or public safety. So how is this any different than in America? This is just giving a back door, a back uh, way or an excuse for the federal government to basically say, we're providing this convenience, this service, we're providing you speedy delivery, we're pro providing you federal security through our program. So, you know, if push comes to shove, maybe there's some um, tricky business or something we might not agree with. Oh, we'll just take a look because we're already able to. It seems like the, the fine print, and this is the really, really fine print. Some terms and conditions may apply, like if uh, your social credit score, should we happen to implement something like that, your ESG scores, if they're below this threshold, you know, then, um, you know, maybe maybe there's some penalties there. The, the danger that you explain here, though, and, and the one that I hope just rings out to people is that direct access to your account. It's not really your account then. If if a third party, be it the, the banking system or uh, the, the government operating through the banking system, can reach in there and either freeze it or take it uh, you know, away from you. I mean, you point out, uh, you thought that uh, maybe raising interest rates on the part of the Fed was bad. What if they had the ability to freeze uh, your opportunity to get paid seems like you could you could compel people pretty handily just by cutting them off from from their cash absolutely i mean as you just mentioned with the with the interest raising the federal reserve is already raising how much you have to pay on loans 
uh, indirectly through groceries, gas, everything. They are basically robbing you of the power of your money. So if they're able to do that in the grand scheme of things through, as you said, raising interest rates, it, it will be considerably more easy for them to do it once they have access to your banking institution, albeit the ones who participate for the time being in the FedNow service. I mean, if they're going to mandate it in the future, we'll figure it out. But uh, it, the fine print uh, comment is is really telling because there are a lot of apologists out there. I'm thinking of around right now, AP went out and they, they went out of their way to uh, publish a, a piece saying, don't worry, the FedNow servers, they won't have access to your bank account information. And they, they basically go on to reassure people, oh, no, this is only for convenience. They're pretty much only citing one source. It's the Federal Reserve. <laughs> so yeah. they're basically t taking the reserve's word for it without even seeing how they've constantly gone back on their word throughout the years, especially through COVID. Um, so at, as of this point in time, I'm more concerned about the lack of transparency with this program because they're only having these wishful thinkings and promises that will we have yet to see whether they're going to follow up on or not. So but at this point in time, yes. Connor, we got about one minute left. I want to ask you, no what are some of the alternatives? So if a person says, okay, uh, for instance, I bank with Wells Fargo, should I be looking for an alternative, maybe a credit union, something in my community. I'm just, I'm curious what you've heard in terms of um, other ways people can can do their banking without participating in this program. Absolutely. So yeah, if 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 you have the misfortune of being with a bank that uh, ends up adopting this FedNow service, you should look into different banks, other ones that do not uh, opt into federal services. Uh, you could also look at a common marketplace like Public Square or others that basically show liberty-minded uh, businesses and banks and other services that actually allow autonomy to the person as opposed to these big banks and uh, big business and the federal government. So we just need to really be conscientious and understand that over time, little by little, they will be taking our rights away and we will not have privacy in due time, especially with FedNow. Fed so we just need to do due diligence and see what we can do to maybe move a bank, take our business elsewhere. Do not give them the power of our money, because at the end of the day, it's still our money. Okay, again, we are talking with Connor Vasile. He is a contributor to Young Voices. And Connor, where can people follow you, either on social media? Where can they find your writing as well? Thank you. So, yeah, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Connor underscore Vasile. You can also find my writings at FEE.org and Free the People. And uh, thank you for having me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Armand Sidhu to the uh, program. He is a Young Voices contributor. And um, Armand, take just a moment to, to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm sure you wear a few other hats as well. Sure. Well, thank you for having me here. My name is Armand Sadu. Uh, I live in Arizona, have been a lifelong resident of Arizona, and started my career in K-12 education. I started as a public school teacher in a Title I public school district. 
Uh, and as my career went on, I got a chance to become an administrator in a charter school uh, and was most recently a principal in a K-8 charter school. And when Arizona made school choice history last year and became the first state to offer universal vouchers, I took that as a sign of the universe uh, to go and, and try to do something new in, in a field that means a lot to me. Uh, so right now, I currently lead a nonprofit micro school called iCubed Learning, which is based in Tempe, Arizona, very close to where I live in Chandler. Uh, and we work with students that are registered as homeschoolers and are users of Arizona's uh, ESA Empowerment Scholarship Account Program. Uh, so a lot of our students are first-time users of this program. Um, some of them are longtime homeschoolers. Others have just transferred from public schools. Uh, but that's just me in a nutshell and, and my career trajectory in K-12 education. My ears perked up as soon as you said school choice, because I know this is a huge topic elsewhere in the nation. Where I live in Idaho, um, boy, we came this close. It was so close, and it just failed by one or two votes in, in the legislature. And and one of the things that I hear quite often, and I want to get your take on this, education savings accounts. Specifically, that is what was proposed here. I understand that's what passed in Arizona. But I hear uh, opponents of school choice say, well, it's a voucher program, as if they're, it's, it's almost a cuss word for them. Why is it so important that they equate ESAs with vouchers? Is there is there a difference between the two? So I think there's a notable difference. Uh, vouchers just tended to be the very popular language at the time. So the architect of uh, the school choice moment, one of the huge proponents was Milton Friedman, uh, the University of Chicago economist. And I think one of the things we should be careful of the language between ESAs and vouchers is vouchers tends to evoke a misconception. And I talk about this in the piece as well. Uh, vouchers kind of almost sounds like we think of a Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory, right? You got the one golden ticket. It can only be used in one place and there's only gonna be one recipient of that. And a lot of the opposition that we've seen uh, towards school choice or specifically school vouchers is that these are becoming construed as subsidies for the affluent. So these are subsidies that maybe don't even cover the entire private school tuition. And that's simply not the case. So a lot of opponents tend to focus on this being merely a subsidy. It's a chance to maybe be used as a coupon as opposed to uh, being used as a, a flexible spending account that doesn't need to be all used in a single place. It doesn't all need to go to a single beneficiary, a single school, but it really allows in the same way that we have health savings accounts and other sorts of mechanisms to allow parents to have gradual choice, not to make a full decision and commitment at the start of the school year, but gradually make purchases and choices uh, that are custom to their child's education. So as I make that decision as a parent, uh, yes, a lot of families tend to use this program and immediately use it for private school tuition, and that can come in the form of secular schools, religious schools. But one of the, the strongest avenues of growth that we've seen in this program is with homeschooling families. Uh, so the 2020 U.S. Census, we saw about 11% of families are now homeschooling. So that's you know, a little bit over one out of every 10 households. And as a result, these ESA programs are for the first time capturing and also funding uh, those homeschooling families. So using this for field trips, using this for learning equipment, uh, textbooks, materials, anything that you would need throughout the course of the year uh, to spend for your child. So ESAs are a little bit more flexible than vouchers. Um, and I think that we really need to be a little bit more careful about using that language because we want this program not to just be uh, withdraw your student from a traditional public school and put them in an environment that looks the same but is private. Uh, we want families to explore the choices uh, that are available to them. And that includes looking at things that weren't necessarily around when you and I 
I were in school. Uh, so micro schools, homeschool co-ops, other sorts of, uh, of avenues to, to spend these funds. Man, I think that comparison to the ESA, uh, to like a health savings account, is brilliant. That's that's I'm I'm gonna co-opt it, and from now on, when I talk about these kind of things, uh, that's one of the things I'm gonna use because, as you point out in your article, the the flexibility means it's not just you know private school tuition. Uh, you talk about tutors, youth sports programs, martial arts studios, community colleges. It Basically, there's a much more well-rounded way to approach this, and this offers the flexibility to parents who are already trying to direct, or at least have more of a hand in directing their children's education. Absolutely. And a lot of these things are, are expenditures that parents are already funding out of pocket. Uh, so martial arts studios, I like to use that example because uh, when we have a public monopoly or public dominance, uh, your child may very well be interested in sports, but they not, may not have the exact program um, that appeals to your child. So it's very hard for any public school to want to cover all the interests and, and get a club or activity for, for every interest out there, especially as, as quick as those change for kids. So these ESA programs, really allow us to take expenditures that we're already funding. For example, martial arts studios is a great example. Um, if your kid doesn't necessarily play for the school sports team, but still wants to be involved in that, these ESA programs can be used for uh, sports leagues, so YMCA league, recreational league, and it's particular to the student. So it's not come into an environment and see what's available and pick what you like best, but see what's out there. If there is enough demand, there will likely be a vendor who will come on and we, we've seen a lot of the martial arts studios and other uh, enrichment type vendors come into the program and it's making use of existing space it's um, empowering local entrepreneurs it's local businesses we're not paying you know a, a large multinational textbook publisher we're paying local local community vendors that are rendering these services uh, for kids in the community this seems very much in harmony with with what i have understood to be the the role of education which is not just school the kids until they know all of these basics but to, to create a more well-rounded individual which can take a lot of different forms i mean it's this is not a narrow focus it's it's broad their their possibilities as well as tapping into uh, some sources of, of I don't know personal interest personal greatness that may exist within those students that you know that you just don't get with that kind of conveyor belt approach yes and it you can feel like a supply chain at times where you know you're just kind of put in this factory we group kids based off of their age levels and that's not necessarily done for any pedagogical or instructional benefit. It's done more so kind of from the operations, like you're saying, the conveyor belt. Uh, I can't put everything in the conveyor belt maybe where it naturally falls, but I have to be able to uh, carefully and gradually make sure um, that I have access to an education where my student doesn't feel behind, my students ahead. They have that latitude to move ahead in subjects where they have those sorts of strengths. So Armon, tell me, how has this been received? Now, it's been in place for a year in, in Arizona, what kind of results are you seeing in terms of participation? So for universal expansion, uh, we've had a lot of families, like I mentioned earlier, that were never captured within the state education funding system. Uh, so they may not have been tracked before. So we have, as of this morning, a little over 64,000 students that have joined. Wow. Uh, so if you think of that, I mean, um, a lot of that, again, is going to be initial growth that was from kids that were already homeschooled or were already in private schools. But any future inflows that we see, and it's important to note this because opponents 
opponents often like to talk about whether or not this program will bankrupt the state. Right. Uh, but it's important to note <laughs> that schools, all schools, are dependent upon enrollment. So uh, we have some flexibility with public schools being able to, to take funds from property taxes. Uh, but the reception from this program, obviously from, from parent side, is they want to respond and they want to see a quicker response to problems they see in school. So whether that's things with safety, school violence, bullying, or if that's curriculum and instructional and making sure that, that we have uh, an education that is particular and personalized for each student. We have about 30 seconds here, but I have to I have to ask your opinion. It sounds like this brings some competition into the education arena. Is that still considered a dirty word by some within that arena? I don't think so. I think as a principal, as a former principal and teacher, competition ensures that you're responding to your community. It's not just a matter of giving parents a voice, but also giving them agency to make those reforms. So I think what is really a, an appealing part of this program is for parents, you don't need to run for PTA president or run for school board to have any sort of voice, choice, and agency in your child's education. Uh, but you can put your money where your mouth is, and you can actually make those choices uh, that are best suited for the family and child. Again, we are talking with Armand Sidhu. He is a contributor for Young Voices. And where can people find you on social media? Uh, so I can be found on, on Facebook. I don't have any other social media handles at the time, uh, but I typically like to write. And my website is at uh, armandsidhu.com. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome another new contributor. Her name is Alyssa Norris. And Alyssa, I wonder if you would take just a moment to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I currently work for a sustainable fuels company. I lead up our sustainability uh, development team. So I do a lot of work with life cycle analysis, um, a lot of work on uh, on basically making sure that our projects and our, our products are sustainable in all senses of the word. Um, I'm originally from North Pole, Alaska, so Santa Claus and I tend to be on good terms. Um, and uh, have, I've worked a lot in, in the last few years, mainly in the Pacific Northwest on renewable energy projects. Um, worked for a few engineering firms and, um, like I said, kind of made, made my way to sustainable fuels. So. Excited to talk about this today. Okay, I learned a new term when I was reading the article you'd written for RealClearEnergy.org. I had not heard mm -hmm. the term greenwashing before. But uh, before we dive into your article, for those like me who are encountering this for the first time, what exactly is meant by greenwashing? Sure. So greenwashing is essentially um, the term of of I guess you know taking basically taking an attempt to. Um, take environmental uh, projects and, and products, and uh, even if they're not really environmentally friendly or sustainable, and basically saying that they are. So um, essentially, it's it's kind of a term for touting and, and being able to, to market your project as something or product as something that is sustainable, is green, and, and maybe really isn't. So, um, so it's becoming like a term that's- Virtue signaling without actually doing the virtuous thing. Exactly. Yep. So, so saying, um, 
you know, that things might be sustainable without really having evidence or anything to back it up. And you give an excellent example of this in your article. Now, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently Delta Airlines uh, faced a very, very large lawsuit for claiming to be the world's first carbon neutral airline. Tell me a little bit about that situation. Sure. So this lawsuit came up back in May. Um, and a billion dollar lawsuit is nothing to nothing to scoff at. Um, but again, they made these claims really without backing them up by saying that they were the world's first carbon neutral airline without really having, um, again, any a, a real life cycle analysis that was robust um, without really taking into account if they really were carbon neutral. Um, one of the things that comes up in the lawsuit is that they were using a lot of credits and buying their way into saying that they're sustainable. Um, so there's been quite a bit of backlash and there's a lot of airlines that, uh, that could be having issues in the future as well. And so you make the case that we need sustainability standards within the aviation sector, particularly as it pertains to, um, you know, their, their um, climate accountability. Let's talk about the impact that, that aviation has in terms of, of carbon emissions. I mean, I've seen the maps of here's the air traffic of the world at any one time. There are a lot of planes in the air, way more than I would there have thought. There are. <laughs> Lots of planes in the air, and it's only growing. Um, so, you know, every year, with the exception of, of the COVID years, we've seen aviation growing um, again every year. And a lot of the a lot of the transportation industry certainly contributes to to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but as a whole, uh, not just looking at the transportation industry, aviation takes about three percent of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there's additional additional issues, but I really want to focus on the the fuel and, and carbon intensity. Um, so. so I'm curious, are there alternatives um, to the existing aviation fuels that uh, would be a lower, lower carbon choice? I mean, do they have that option or are they pretty much locked into, I don't know what you would call it, JP4, the kerosene kind of uh, jet fuel? Or are, are there alternatives that, that are being explored that, that don't put out nearly as much uh, carbon dioxide? There are. So um, sustainable aviation fuel, which is also known as SAF, is, is becoming more and more of a topic. Um, these fuels can be made from a variety of different carbon sources, um, sometimes from waste, municipal solid waste, sometimes from agriculture wastes, uh, sometimes from forestry waste. There's a whole different variety. Um, but these fuels, they're what, what's known as a drop-in fuel. So you can use it. Uh, essentially, it's the same chemically as a jet A fuel, which which is in in the, the commercial planes that you take to fly someplace. Um, but their their life cycle greenhouse gas emissions can be reduced by up to 80 uh, percent wow. compared to fossil. So quite a big a big difference. OK, that's uh, I, I had no idea. No, I actually I knew a, a guy who I kind of thought of him as just a kind of an, an eccentric inventor. But this was, you know, 10 years ago. He was working on algae as a type of jet fuel. Um, they dry it and apparently grind it up very fine and it combusts. And anyway, I, I know there yeah. have been some efforts to do this kind of stuff. How is this received by the airline industry? Does this mean that they have to drastically retool what they're doing or can they work within you know the existing types of engines that they use on their planes um, to utilize these, these uh, more uh, carbon friendly fuels? Sure. So right now, um, the FAA, who standardized uh, how, how much sustainable aviation fuel or SAF can go in, they have set limits that say um, they've done a lot of testing with, with 
um, different engine companies and different airplane manufacturers, including Boeing, um, that there's a certain threshold of sustainable aviation fuel that can be blended with existing fuel and these airlines uh, or aircraft. So right now there's, um, like I said, certainly a threshold. As engines get better and better, we can go up to 100% sustainable aviation fuel. There's actually a few uh, upcoming flights that are planned that will run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Um, but for the most part, I would say that that airline companies have really embraced this. Um, companies like United and JetBlue have both set aside ventures to specifically invest in sustainable aviation fuel and sustainable aviation technologies. Um, and a lot of companies, especially here in the United States, have committed to uh, using SAF um, and lo lowering their their um, their greenhouse gas emission footprint by 2050. So let's bring it around full circle. Now, how do we make sure that uh, the airlines that are taking these steps are actually doing it? Where does the accountability come from? Sure, and and that's really the whole point of this article and and what I'm I'm advocating for. Um, there really isn't much of a standard right now. Uh, the closest we have right now is is something called Corsia, which is um, the the let's see carbon offsetting reduction scheme for international aviation. Um, that's put aside by um, ICAO, which is the International Civil Aviation Organization, an arm of the United Nations. Um, but that's all an opt-in program. And really, there, there's been some great strides, uh, both the Sustainable Aviation Fuel Accuracy Act um, that's in the Senate and a sister um, legislation that's in the House um, that really just states that we need transparency and clear standards so that we can compare uh, these fuels as they come more online and these and these technologies um, so that we can you know make sure that they really are sustainable and they're not just greenwashed. Now, I don't want to sound like a penny-pinching consumer, but I do have to ask, by adopting these uh, more carbon-friendly fuels, does that significantly increase the cost of business for the airlines? Sure. Right now, it does. Um, you know, the, the technology is still uh, being developed. Um, right now, creating sustainable aviation fuel is about six times more expensive than, than your traditional fossil fuel. Um, that said... As with any commercial scale-up technology, you have this, this large investment period that needs to happen, and then eventually that product becomes more and more affordable. Um, so, so my hope really is that with these investments and with these technology um, breakthroughs, we're able to lower that cost and really bring it back, uh, if not the same, almost the same as the fossil fuels that we're using today. Is there any estimate as to how long it would take for the economy of scale to to get big enough that th those costs would come down for all the airline and, and aviation folks who are using it? Um, I would say at this point, it's still, uh, the jury's still out. Um, lots of lots of technologies, lots of companies are in this space. I think we're seeing huge strides, but we just don't don't really know. There needs to be more investment uh, to get to commercialization scale, and we're just not really sure. So I hope sooner rather than later for all of us that like to fly. Well, it sounds like there there's acceptance within the the airline industry, but it sounds like also there there could be a little bit of uh, wink wink acceptance. Uh, Delta, I'm looking your way. Oh look, we're doing it too, but. Um, is this is this a better business model for them if if they are showing you know that they're they're being more climate conscious um, is that going to translate into uh, you know more opportunity down the road? 
Sure. I, I certainly think it will. Um, right now, you know, United, there's an opt-in function for people to spend a little bit more in sustainable aviation efforts, and they're seeing more and more people doing that. Um, so I think that there certainly is an appetite, a small appetite. Uh, you know, people don't want to be spending way too much money on airline flights. Um, but overall, the general population seems to be more aware and, and seems to at least be interested in paying a little bit more for sustainable options. So I think this is a step in the right direction. Okay, again, we are talking with Alyssa Norris. She is a Young Voices contributor. And Alyssa, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find your writing? Sure. Um, mostly, I would say LinkedIn. Um, Alyssa Norris is, is the handle. Um, and that's that's probably the best place. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm really excited about this next guest, and, and I've known for a little while that she was going to be joining us on the show. Uh, she is part of the Dissident Project, and you can go to dissidentproject.org to learn more about her. In fact, there's a link in the show notes for this program. I want to welcome Sahyon Lee. She is a North Korean defector, and, and she has a remarkable story to tell. Uh, Sahyon, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my great pleasure to be here um, and uh, share my stories with your audience. Thank you for having me again. Uh, before we before we go into your um, particular story, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, the Dissident Project? I know that there's there's a great purpose behind this. There's a message that that we are trying to get out to the world. What is the reason behind the creation of the Dissident Project? So um, our speakers, the, this amazing distant project speakers, they are all from the um, autocratic those countries across the globe, including Venezuela, China, Cuba, and North Korea. So um, we all have different experience, but there is a one um, common thing. They are all coming from either communism or dictatorship or socialism countries. So, um, I mean, which systems, uh, the Americans have never had that opportunity, luckily, um, to experience it. So our main goal is to share our stories and then deliver the important messages, how it is important to secure your individual freedom. Um, and then um, just help them to be aware that uh, loopholes of those different systems. And then, um, yeah, that's, I think that's, um, um, and uh, yeah, help them to realize that what, um, realize how lucky they are and then um, appreciate um, the lives and then system they are enjoying in America. I think that's our, um, the Distant Project's goal. Um, and we are adding more values uh, as the project is growing. So, yeah, thank you for letting me give me the chance to introduce this distant project. Well, thank you for, for raising your voice. I want you to know um, it's so powerful to hear from someone who has experienced firsthand what it's like to live under a very autocratic system and, and who knows mm -hmm. uh, the, the risks involved. And, and tell us a little bit about your story. You, you were born and raised in North Korea, in, in Pyongyang. Um, tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up. 
So, uh, yes, I was born in um, growing Pyongyang in 1991. So, um, but I mean, I always um, saying this, I was um, like a fish doesn't even aware they are under the water. Um, and there is no chance to compare li my life to the outside world. And I believed those propaganda taught by the regime. So I was always proud of um, for whom being whom, and then um, the, by the fact that I have the I had the great leadership in this country, and then like believe that like um, communism and socialism are the best systems in the world, and. Um, in 2005, I had a chance to uh, go to China to study abroad. And first time when I landed in China, it was like completely open my eyes, ears. Um, I was too young at the time to um, get the enlightenment, what is wrong with this system, but uh, just to buy the simple facts that there are so many cars on the streets and then like um, the light lights they have all of the places and then the crowd in the airport, all those like simple things were uh, eye-opening to me. So, um, and then slowly I realized that what I was knowing is not true, uh, not only even about the outside world, but also about the leadership and the country um, based on the, like a, a little bit of fact the um the Kim regime Kim family made up the whole story um they taught the people that um whole korean peninsula was liberated by kim il-sung the founder of north korea but it's just not true um and then um i also thought this is one of the most like shocking fact when i found this out um, we believed, North Koreans believed that the Korean War was invaded by America and South Korea. So the truth is completely um, twisted. So when I find out those uh, facts one by one, and then I lost my faith in the regime, and when I witnessed my best friend um, dragged away in front of me uh, for wow. something that she has not committed. Her father worked for the government, but he uh, was associated with Kim Jong-un's uncle, Chang Sung-tae. And then the only reason that her family members, her father was executed and her entire family were sent to political prison camp was because they worked for Chang Sung-tae. And then... Wow. Um, Many people don't quite understand North Korea is not a place where individual those officers can have their own opinions. It is are all like centralized um, um, directive that um, system. So it was. Um, I mean, that was the my epiphany uh, in my life, and then talk to, um, talk I to completely me about your lost education. my hope. I'd like to learn. Excuse I me. I understand that you uh, received the most prestigious education mm -hmm. uh, in in North Korea. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, what opened the door uh, for for you to receive that education? Um, so in Pyongyang, um, if you may um, specialize in artists like playing piano or guitar or like especially good in singing, um, then you are, uh, many kids, they um, join the 
um, bands at the kindergarten, and they articulate their like musical talents over there, and then they uh, apply for the um, schools where specially um, educate uh, artists. So I went to the Kumsan Academy. Um, the first la lady of North Korea research attended, uh, and I was majored in guitar and then singing over there. Wow. Um, so, but uh, it was really prestigious school. They only um, select under 100 students all of the countries. But um, because other people are well talented, uh, and then I gradually uh, found myself have more interesting in studying. So I uh, studied and then um, went through the like tournament testing and uh, was able to get into the Pyongyang Foreign Language School. So, I mean, it is not easy steps. You have to go through the, um, at least three different all the tests in order to get to the, um, get into the school. So, and after the high school, I went to the Kim Il-sung University. That was the totally tall, um, different story. Um, studied really hard. Uh, it, it is not true. Like, they are still, the government still uh, tightly controls, but if you are academically outstanding, you also give the opportunity. Uh, receive the opportunity to apply for the good schools. So that was my case that I had the chance to receive the most prestigious in North Korea, education in North Korea. And the reason I was able to go to China, because my father was the economic officer for the regime, and then uh, he was dispatched by the regime to China to uh, introduce investment into North Korea. So, um, and then, yeah, one children was able to uh, take on with him. We only have about a minute left, but I, I have to know, um, how did you how did you and your family defect? Was your family able to defect with you? Yes. So um, our whole family were living in China in 2014, and we had our own passport. Um, it's really rare case. Not many people, even if they want to uh, leave the country, they cannot because um, not many North Koreans can live all together as out of the country and then have right. their own passport with themselves. So we are lucky, um, and that enabled us to um, sought asylum in South Korea and later resettled in America, and I'm really, really grateful, and then um, this life I am having in America. I wish we had more time. Unfortunately, the, the <laughs> clock is running out on us, but um, I understand that you have given a TEDx talk titled, Are Bubbles mm -hmm. of Certainty a Perspective from My Life in North Korea? I assume that we can find that on YouTube? Yes. Yes, sir. Okay. Again, we, we're talking with Sohyun Lee. Um, I'm so grateful that you are sharing your message and, and grateful that you've come forward. I, you have so much more to tell, and I wish we had more time to do it. Um, is, is it possible for people to follow you online? Uh, do you have any social media presence or, or a website? Yes, I do. I have a social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, if you type Pyonghattin, which is the combination word of Pyongyang and Manhattan, so Pyonghattin, I want to bring the liberty, um, the statue from Manhattan to the Pyongyang one day. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, or like my goes by my name, Sohyun, S-E-O-H-Y-U-N, last name Lee, Sohyun Lee, then you can easily find me from um, the online. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.